It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. Straight ahead on the program, we preview the August jobs report. I'm Nathan Hager. I'm Caroline Hepke here in London, where we're looking at snowballing strike action in Britain. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at fallout from China's property crisis on the big four banks. I'm Amy Morris in Washington. The global food shortage is getting worse thanks to a series of droughts across the globe. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Nathan Hager. And we begin today's program with a look at the upcoming jobs report. Joining me now to talk more about it is Ira Jersey, U.S. interest rate strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Of course, Ira, we're coming off that big jobs report from July, where I think uh, just about no economist expected just how many jobs were going to be created. It was like twice as many as estimates. Are you thinking that this is the kind of strength that we're going to continue to see in the August report? Yeah, I don't know if we'll necessarily be able to replicate what happened in July, but but I think the idea that we're going to continue to have relatively strong job growth, and in particular, I have really been focusing on the wage data, because when we think about inflation and the inflationary environment, the thing that's going to allow inflation to stay much higher than we're comfortable with, and certainly the Federal Reserve and the central bank is comfortable with, is if wages continue to grow very rapidly. And, and so so, when, so I look at aggregate labor income, which is the number of jobs created times the number of hours worked times the actual uh, hourly wage. And, and that is rising still at 9% year on year as of the end of July. And that's, you know, as fast or faster than inflation. So that's, that's a sign that, you know, the consumer as a whole is still doing okay uh, when it comes to, to incomes. Might not feel like it, in some sectors, but um, but but those are what the facts show. Of course, we're in the middle of a pretty aggressive rate cycle at this point, and we've continued to see this uh, pretty robust strength in the labor market. Why do you think we haven't really seen uh, the kind of erosion that you might expect when you get you know, 75 basis point moves from meeting to meeting? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is because prices have been able to be raised by a lot of companies, and in particular in the services sector, that they still have decent cash flow where they're able to continue to hire people and and or give raises. Um, and, and you're at a point, too, where the labor market is so tight, where we just don't have the workforce expanding as significantly, where, believe it or not, 
labor has actually some pricing power. So um, even though like back in the 1970s, you had a lot of union activity, you had wages that would go up automatically when the consumer price index went up. You don't have that today. But what you have today instead is people have the ability to go out to find a new job. So their existing employers are going to give them raises to, to keep them or workers are going to leave for higher paying jobs. So, um, so so you do have the beginnings of what looks like a price wage spiral or wage price spiral, I should say. And uh, and that is something that, that we have to keep, you know, very keen tabs on. And one of the reasons why the employment report for August is going to be so important. And at the same time, Ira, we have seen a number of companies, both big and small, come out with a number of layoffs. Do you think that's going to be reflected in the report as well? Uh, it doesn't seem that way. When you you look at initial jobless claims and what they did for for the the, the survey week and most of the uh, uh, most of the month of August, um, you, you saw them very stable. So you haven't seen a large increase in the number of uh, of people applying for unemployment insurance. So it doesn't seem like even though there's been some high profile layoffs people are still getting jobs, right? Remember, layoffs are only one part of the equation. That's how many people are getting, some, how many people are getting fired. Um, and, and and obviously, you know, sometimes you see chunky numbers, 10,000, 8,000 people. But if a lot of those people are able to find a job very quickly, they don't apply for insurance, uh, for, for unemployment insurance. And and so so they, uh, uh, because they wind up going to, to get jobs almost right away because jobs are so plentiful right now. Um, and, and I think, so, so So I don't think that you're going going to see a significant, uh, uh, you know, downtick in in um, the number of jobs created in August because um, uh, just because of some of the high profile layoffs we've seen. How do you look at a, a strong labor market uh, like we've seen over the last few months from a rate strategy perspective? How do payrolls reports factor into what you do in your world? Yeah, so we actually look at payrolls very closely, and when you empirically look at how much the uh, the Treasury market moves, like the ten year Treasury yield moves, when you get misses or beats in payrolls, it's still the granddaddy of all the uh, economic reports. Um, CPI, even though it's gotten a lot of headlines, is is a pretty close number two now. It used to be a very far number three, but now it's uh, uh, it's it's number two. But but still, the the jobs report is still number one on the market's minds when it comes to uh, market reaction and what uh, investors care about. We have heard a number of Fed speakers lately say that they are determined to fight inflation. Are you thinking that means there's less of a fear among some policymakers about the risk of recession? I, I don't think so. I think that they still all worry about it. You know, you keep on hearing about they're trying to generate a soft landing and, and the like. And, you know, at, Five of the last six hiking cycles, you've seen recessions after uh, the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates significantly. And in doing so, um, and and one of the, the almost tacit goals, although they'll never admit it, in raising interest rates is to generate some form of economic slowdown. And so, so, you know, it depends on what you consider a soft landing. You know, a mild recession is a possible outcome uh, where you see modest increases in uh, the unemployment rate, for example, and, and some other measures of economic activity. Um, but but nonetheless, you're, you're very likely to see a recession at some point in either late 23 or 2024. Um, and it, because the Federal Reserve, in order to get interest rates down, has to generate one. It's going to be the only way, realistically, to decrease inflation. Thanks for this, Ira. Great having you with us. Thanks very much. That's Ira Jersey, U.S. interest rate strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we take a look at inflation pressures and labor unrest in the U.K. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. 
This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Nathan Hager. Up later in our program, banks in China in the spotlight as we head into the coming trading week. But first, soaring inflation and bills have workers demanding higher pay and out on strike to get it in in the U.K., for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Caroline Hepker. Nathan, barely a day has passed this summer in Britain without a picket line or the announcement of another strike. Train drivers, bus drivers, bin men, engineers, even barristers. Next week, BT and Openreach workers are striking and criminal barristers in England and Wales have now voted for indefinite strike action from September. For more, I'm joined by Bloomberg's legal reporter Jonathan Browning and Thomas Seal, our tech, media and telecoms reporter. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for joining me. Firstly, on the telecoms engineers issue, that's the most immediate strike. It's happening in the next few days. Why are they um, uh, going out on strike? They're not being paid enough in their view. Uh, Inflation continues to increase uh, and they were offered uh, a unilateral pay increase of £1,500. So no matter what you were paid, about 58,000 workers were given that. It's already in their bank accounts. But that comes out at sort of 5% inflation on average for many of those workers compared to, you know, we're now seeing a potential 18.6% later in in the next 12 months. So they want more. It's not clear exactly how much more they want. And uh, this is the second strike. So we're, we're in a sort of rolling strike situation with them now. Okay, so this is the common cry, isn't it? And that city forecast for inflation in the UK, certainly even higher than the, you know what the Bank of England is expecting, which is 13% inflation. Barristers, though, um, Jonathan, the issue there, again, it's been ongoing since April, but they're stepping it up. Yeah, it's a huge escalation. Um, the Criminal Bar Association, the um, advocates that prosecute and defend uh, in court um, have been gradually increasing their um, their action uh, and it started a bit kind of on off on off but from September we go to an all-out strike um, the courts and the courtrooms will be empty yeah, effectively sort of grinding justice to, to a halt as it were I mean ministers Jonathan have perhaps unwisely been extremely critical of of lawyers you know um using these sort of uh, as one lawyer put it sound bites holding justice um hostage as it were to, to ransom that sort of language um is that justified i suppose or well what they do is they play up the fact that they're in their gig their, their wigs and their gowns it's a very rarefied it looks like a very rarefied profession but the reality is that the junior barristers, the barristers just starting out, can be earning less than the minimum wage. They're self-employed, they don't get sick pay, they don't have a pension, um, and they're putting in hours of work before a actual hearing takes place. Um, and the take-home pay can be less than the minimum wage. Yeah. Has anybody, Thomas, noticed that the BT and Openreach um, engineers are on strike? I mean, this is broadband and and um, telecoms access across the country, right? This is the dilemma facing them. They can't withdraw services for the really important things that BT does. For instance, 999 calls. Uh-huh. They've carved that out. So what we're seeing is some kind of minimal impact on repairing broken cabinets or installing new lines but ultimately they're striking for two days at a time. This is the second two-day strike coming up, and maybe you have to wait a bit longer. 
it's possible something bigger goes down and we all have to wait for London to come back and running. But uh, so far, we've not seen anything like that. Yeah, I wonder whether we take a step back then, because um, it has been this kind of dubbed this summer of discontent. And there are just so many professions involved, aren't there, in the sort of strike action. Um, I suppose how much... Uh, are the unions, are governments going to cave in terms of the wage demand? On barristers, it seems like they really do have a very strong case. They've argued that they've faced a lot of cuts for a long time. The government is going to end up being, under a new prime minister, under a lot of pressure here. Yeah, and there will be a new justice minister by yes. the time that we get to um, by the time we get to early September. Dominic Raab has has essentially pulled down the shutters, I think. Um, but there will likely be a new a new justice minister, and they're 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 ta- these these conversations, if they are even taking place, are taking place against a back a backdrop of entirely broken courts anyway. Mm. Um, there is a backlog of criminal cases that now ru- now numbers fifty eight more than fifty eight thousand. Um, That's a staggering figure. I mean, that was built up during the pandemic. We know the difficulties of kind of Zoom uh, court cases. Um, Yeah. Is there a plan to catch up? Well, the plan was to um, open the Nightingale courts, courts in theatres and in in, in other kind of public buildings um, to 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 put more um, to put more cases on. Um, And the number was just beginning to come down. um, But it's with the fact is there have now been at least 6000 court hearings disrupted um that number is 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 going to soar again and i mean it may be worth sort of pointing out that it will be those same criminal barristers who will have to clear that backlog mm. um they are taking the hit and as i said they're they're self-employed so they 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 will be losing those earnings but they are their job will also be to clear that backlog when it's when when it when any strike is over okay so that perhaps you can sense the frustration there thomas um i don't think i've ever spoken to as many unions as i have in the last few weeks on bloomberg um radio we we spoke to the head of unite union very very strong on the felix Stowe strike which is dock workers you know saying that this was a profitable business and they'd made more money than they had done in many years and that that if they could pay, they should pay. But this is a real test of the unions, isn't it? When it comes to the engineers, to BT and Openreach, how profitable is that business? How how willing and able is the company to pay? What can the unions really extract? Yes, this is the Communication Workers Union and they are extremely busy because they are also uh, post workers. Yes. Um, So they're also striking. So it might be the most busy, short period they've ever faced as as the CWU. They represent a majority of BT workers, and they argue that BT can afford it. BT is profitable. BT's rejoinder, and we were um, able to see internal town hall meetings where uh, BT put its point of view across um, sort of more candidly, they argue they can't afford it. Thank you so much for joining me here on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg's legal reporter Jonathan Browning and Thomas Seal, tech, media and telecoms reporter, read all of their reports on the Bloomberg Terminal, of course. And do join us here on Bloomberg Radio for more. I'm Caroline Hepke in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Nathan. All right, thank you, Caroline. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, how much are China's economic woes hurting the banking industry? I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. 
Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Nathan Hager with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. China's massive real estate crisis continues to unfold and there's spillover now in the banking industry. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis. Nathan, we look at China's property crisis through the prism of China's massive banks. What will the impact be on earnings from mortgage boycotts, from falling prices and problem loans? Big bank earnings are coming. And joining us to break it all down is Francis Chan, who covers banks and brokerages for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Francis, is China Construction Bank the most exposed and what might we expect from those earnings? Obviously, China Construction Banks uh, have uh, close to 40 percent of their total loans uh, property related and uh, their mortgage book is the biggest uh, in the country. Uh, But uh, based on the uh, very recent set of regulatory data, uh, they talk about uh, the state bank segment, which includes uh, the biggest banks in the country, ICBC, China Construction Bank, Agricultural Bank, and Bank of China. In fact, their earnings are still resilient on a year-on-year basis, and their NPR ratios has been trending down from the beginning of the year uh, to June, or the end of second quarter. So, at the very least, uh, we haven't seen the, much of the impact from um, the early COVID lockdown, uh, which is uh, really eye-catching in Shanghai. Uh, and and uh, they have been uh, actively disposing any of the newly formed bad debts. And uh, they themselves have also got a very strong buffer against uh, uh, the, the problem loans, new problem loans they see this year, uh, as represented by NPR coverage. And uh, all those uh, will support uh, the resilient earnings, uh, I, I believe, in 2022. So how big would the impact be from the loan boycotts that we've heard so much about? So far, this may still be a black box. Uh, if you look at uh, our own research, Global Intelligence Research, we have been uh, making some assumptions uh, based on the uh, stored or halted uh, residential projects by the troubled developers. And uh, the amount... Uh, to be affected, amount of mortgages to be affected uh, by these projects could be up to 2.4 trillion uh, yuan um, or 6.5% of uh, the total mortgage book in the country uh, in the worst case scenario. And in our base case scenario, it's like 1.3 trillion. However, um, you know, uh, those projects uh, uh, could be uh, still uh, in in a coma situation. It doesn't mean the... uh, the mortgagers uh, would all decline to pay back their uh, uh, mortgages. And if we take reference to what happened or what uh, the banks have disclosed in mid-July, I think uh, what they have uh, flagged as uh, the amount of home loans affected by those boycotts have been really, really minimal, like uh, uh, only seal uh, 0.1% of their total mortgage books. This is insignificant to a, a, a way that we cannot believe. That's why I said uh, you may still see it as a black box, maybe more to come. But at the very least, uh, to 
uh, as of uh, mid-July. Uh, we, we really didn't see that big a problem, according to banks' disclosure. So you mentioned the big four, China Construction Bank, Ag Bank, ICBC, and Bank of China. Among them, which looks the most profitable from your analysis? I, I believe a China Construction Bank and Agricultural Bank may still stand a better chance to deliver uh, better than peers' profits. If you talk about the comparison, it would be uh, among the four. Uh, the two banks, uh, historically, they got the uh, higher interest margins, and at the same time, uh, their loan growth uh, are more resilient uh, uh, as they are supporting the country's uh, policies in uh, making more uh, inclusive loans, green loans, such as such. Uh, RCBC is the biggest in the country, uh, but its base is also a, a little bit bigger than the others. And it makes its growth a little bit slower. Nothing wrong with them. It's just because of the base effect. And uh, Bank of China uh, has been uh, in a bit more uh, slowing growth mode. Uh, it's a very well-managed bank. Don't take me wrong. It's just that, that they also have a sizable overseas business, which is running a bit different uh, fundamental uh, you know, prospects against the other three. So we've seen the PBOC easing, and I wonder what that means for margin pressures for the banks. Yeah, uh, that uh, would be a problem in near term. Yeah. All right, Francis. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing your insights with us. Francis Chan, who covers banks and brokerages for Bloomberg Intelligence. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Nathan? Thank you, Brian. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, drought is drying up prospects for dealing with the global food shortage. How bad is it and how bad can it get? I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Nathan Hager. The U.S. is in the middle of a nasty and painful drought, and it's even worse in many other countries. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Amy Morris. Amy. All right. Thank you, Nathan. A global food shortage was already getting really painful because of the war in Ukraine and supply chain issues. Now there's a drought, and it's adding a whole new dimension to this crisis. We go now to Bloomberg News editor Millie Munchie. She's been following this, and she's going to bring us up to speed. Millie, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. Now let's start with the basics, corn. It is what we're seeing in places like Nebraska. Crop scouts going out last week to measure the size of the ears. This really struck me because this year they couldn't find any ears to measure. Uh, put this in perspective for those of us who don't live in the Nebraska area, who don't live in the Corn Belt, exactly how bad this is. This year has been pretty extreme when it comes to drought. So as you probably know, the the U.S. West has been mired in this drought that's been going on for years, if not decades. Um, you know, in some regions, it's the, it's the worst drought in more than a thousand years. Um, so the western half of the U.S. has really dried out, and that impacts western corn-growing states like Nebraska and South Dakota. Um, if you go through areas of Nebraska right now and you look at the Platte River, it, you would be surprised. It looks like a puddle or a trickle. To call that a river right now is kind of a, a shocking thing. Um, and so that really, really impacts these cornfields. Uh, a lot of these tour scouts went out. Um, what they do is they measure 
corn plants. They try to see how tall they are. They look at the corn ears and see how many kernels are filled. Some of the fields they went to, they couldn't even find ears because what happens is these these plants, when they grow, if there's not enough water, they they can't pollinate. They can't produce those ears. It's not that it was a super widespread phenomena. You know, it was a few isolated fields, but it just really points to how bad this drought is and what an impact it's having on the corn crop. I see. It's not that all of the ears are gone. It's not that there isn't any corn. It's that when there are areas where they couldn't even find ears to measure on the corn stalks, that may be uh, a sign that something bad may be to come. On a typical corn tour, you walk in, these plants are green, they're lush, they're very tall. Um, And this year, these plants were browning, they were stunted, they were short, and then some of them were not producing these ears meaning that the, you know, the actual cobs of grain just did not, were not on the plant. And then in the fields where there were ears, which was typically the case, a lot of those corn ears were not filled with kernels. Um, there's a phenomenon that farmers call tip back, where you get an ear of corn, if you imagine like peeling the husk off, and then you look at that ear of corn, typically it's yellow from tip to top, you know, from top to bottom, sure. uh, because it's filled with kernels. This year, some of those corn ears were only half yellow or three quarters yellow. Um, That typically happens. You see that a little bit, but it was much more widespread this year, much more common than usual. And all of that points to yields that are going to be way off what farmers were hoping to get. Um, In virtually every state that these tour scouts went to, uh, yields are worse than last year. Uh, Really only in Minnesota are they doing a, a, a little bit better. Um, but most of the state's yields are worse than last year. And in a lot of the fields, the yields are worse than the three-year average as well. And that's bad because, you know, if you're not even getting average corn, you're, you're seeing a national harvest that's going to be really lagging. And, of course, we're in a year right now where food supplies have been extremely tight. And so to not make that average means that the global food situation is going to get even tighter. What are farmers doing? I mean, are they able to somehow salvage those damaged crops at all? Right now, I think the main thing that farmers are hoping for is some more rains from now through the end of the growing season. Uh, harvest for the corn crop typically starts in a couple weeks. Soybeans will start a little bit later in the year um, and, you know, uh, more like September, sometime in October, sometime for the soybeans. And so from now through the end of that growing season, if we can get some better rains in some of these regions. We could see the yields bump up a little bit from where they are now. Corn is is basically baked in, um, but soybeans have more potential because they grow later into the season. Some good rains for the next few weeks can really bump up the soybean crop. So that's what farmers are hoping for in the next few weeks. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, just to give perspective for our audience about how important corn is in the food chain, especially just in the U.S., Uh, the importance of corn in the food chain and what this could mean down the road, and then compare that with soy. You mentioned how soy is later in the season, so it has a fighting chance. So corn is one of the world's most important crops. Um, Now, when we talk about corn that's, you know, that that these scouts are looking at or the corn futures that are traded in Chicago, just to be clear, that's not the, you know, corn on the cob that we like to eat at a barbecue. Um, That corn on the cob at the barbecue, that's called sweet corn. What's grown um, in these fields and, you know, that the U.S. is a huge producer of um, is called dent corn. Um, And that type of corn is used 
in all kinds of different ways. It's used for livestock feed, so it's really critical for producing meat and for producing dairy. Um, it's also used in ethanol and that type of thing. And for soybeans, soybeans are also a, a pretty major crop. Um, soybeans are used in cooking oil. You get soybean oil out of out of soybeans, and they're also used um, for livestock feed as well. And the U.S. is a big producer of soybeans. Um, so the fact that the soybeans are looking better, a lot of that has to do with the growing season because corn gets planted a bit earlier and we had a lot more dry weather earlier that's impacted the corn crop. Soybeans get planted a little bit later and they grow a little bit later. And so we've had some late season rains in some parts of the crop belt that's helped out the soybeans. We're hoping for more rains and that those soybeans will keep looking good. And we are talking with Bloomberg editor Millie Munchie. She covers agriculture for Bloomberg News. Millie, let's talk a bit about why this is happening. We mentioned the drought, and I want to talk to you a little bit about the drought overseas in Europe and taking a global view. But before we do, let's take a a, a much broader view and find out why this is happening in the first place. There's a variety of factors that cause drought, but the biggest thing that's underpinning all of this is climate change. Uh, one of the things that climate change has done is it's made heat waves uh, much more common and much more extreme in the U.S., but all over the globe. Um, I'm sure we've all, you know, at different times experienced much hotter weather than we're used to this summer. Um, And that's true of the U.S. We've seen temperatures, you know, hitting 104 degrees, hitting 110 degrees in places like Kentucky and Texas. Um, In Colorado, we've seen temperature regularly above 100 degrees. And that is that is definitely related to climate change and the way that the planet is warming. Um, we've seen massive heat waves this year also in Europe. We've seen them in China. We've seen them in India. So this is really a global phenomenon and climate change is underpinning this huge shift of weather that's happening around the world. I wanted to ask about that. The worst drought in 500 years in Europe, a huge drought in parts of Africa, a drought going on, rather parts of China, and a drought going on in the Horn of Africa. Historically, have we seen anything like this before? Or is this just part of a cycle? Yeah, this is really outside the norm. We have heat waves that are, you know, shattering records in ways that, you know, are happening all around the globe and all around at the same time. Part of what makes this so unique is that the weather has changed not just slowly over a course of a number of years, but it's it's changed very rapidly. And the other thing that's very extreme is that we're seeing this changing weather in all parts of the globe at the same time. So you're seeing, um, you know, massive heat waves, like you said, in Europe, in Asia, in the U.S., in other parts of North America. And it's all happening simultaneously. It's all happening to a much greater degree. So we, because of all those factors, it is very much linked to climate change. It's a phenomena that's driven by climate change and not just the typical cycles of weather that we've been used to in the you know, pre-climate change era. Now, I know the White House conference on hunger is coming up September 1st. What are you going to be watching for to come out of the White House? What is the White House looking at? I think that, you know, the Biden administration is really looking to see what they can do to curb the hunger that's been in the U.S. There's also massive hunger across the planet at this time as well. As you mentioned, there's a, a huge drought in Africa. That's causing, you know, huge amounts of hunger in that part of the world. Um, 
the World Food Organ, uh, you know, the the World Food Program has really warned about massive spiking levels of hunger in all parts of the world. And this has been happening since the onset of the pandemic, but it, it continues to get worse. A lot of the worsening is due to the extreme prices of food that we've seen in the last year. Food inflation has taken off in a way that, you know, we're not used to seeing in our lifetimes. Um, and because of that, uh, a lot more people just can't afford to buy food in lots of parts of the world. And it's especially hitting places like Africa, some parts of Asia, some parts of Latin America, very hard. And the World Food Program, what they've called for is, you know, extra funding and for people to really start paying more attention to the fact that these hunger rise levels are rising so dramatically. Bloomberg News Editor Millie Munshi, and that is what is going on in the nation's capital. For more of our political news coverage, you can tune in to Balance of Power with David Weston weekdays at noon Wall Street time and sound on with Joe Matthew weekdays at 5 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Amy Morris and this is Bloomberg. Nathan. Amy Morris reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Thank you, Amy. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and all the news you need to start your day. I'm Nathan Hager, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.